point you to our Savior who selflessly and sacrificially laid down his life for you. For the single mother, may the Lord remind you that you are never truly alone in your parenting. May the Holy Spirit who lives within you give you a double portion of wisdom and grace toward your children. And may our Heavenly Father provide your children with spiritual fathers in the church. For the bereaved mother, may the God of all comfort comfort you today. In your grief and sorrow, may you draw near to our Heavenly Father who knows the pain of seeing a child die but who also has the power to make your child rise again one day. For the weary mother, as your responsibilities mount and your energy wanes, may the Lord remind you that he does not tire or sleep. May your limitations and weaknesses not embarrass or frustrate you, but press you to prayer and become an opportunity for Christ's strength to be displayed in you. For the waiting mother, may the Lord sustain your faith in the midst of your waiting. As you cry out to him and long for the good gift of children, may God give you grace to trust him. And even as you long to hold a child of your own in your arms, may you remember that God holds you in his. For the mother at heart, while the Lord is not opened your womb and given you children of your own to hold, nurture, and love, may you know that you are no less valuable in the eyes of our Heavenly Father who gave his one and only Son to make you his own. And may the Lord bring you spiritual children in the church in whom you can invest. For the broken-hearted mother, may you recall the, the, the same God who gave you your child physical life can give spiritual life as well. May you not lose heart in praying for them and calling them back to the gospel that you've taught them since their youth. For the regretful mother, may the Lord remind you that your children need a model of confession and repentance, not of perfection. Only one can provide that, and it's not you. May you rejoice today that your sins are forgiven in Christ and that our God can redeem what's been broken and restore what's been squandered. For the empty nest, mother, may the Lord remind you that your children are not keepsakes to hold on to, but arrows to shoot out into the world. Yet as you miss the daily responsibilities of mothering, may you take your children before God's throne now more than ever. For the grandmother, may you revel in God's kindness to allow you to see another generation rise up. May he give you a grand vision for these young ones, teaching you to serve them more than you spoil them, helping you to delight more in teaching them the truth than in giving them toys. For the elderly mother, may those around you see your gray hair as a crown of wisdom and your wrinkles as evidence of maturity and experience that should be respected. As you draw nearer to the end of your earthly race, may you delight to remember that being a mother is a long but temporary assignment. Being a daughter of God is an eternal one. May the Lord give you strength to press on until you enter glory.
So we've started a, a sermon series here. We're a little ways into it. We're talking about kingdom building. There's been a lot of talk around here about us being a church seeking revitalization. And that's what we want. We, wanna, we want life. We want God to breathe new life into this church by the power of his spirit at work through his word and through faithful servants. And that's what we all long for. Last week, we saw how we need to fight. If we're going to be a, a church that builds well, we need to know the, the flesh and we need to fight it. And before that, we looked at the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3 and we saw how we need to be watchful. We can't take our eyes off of the main thing. We can't uh, afford to stray from the gospel. And so we've got to be watchful. We need to be alert. This morning, we're going to be in the letter to the Hebrews. And a little background here, we'll be in chapter 10. But the author of Hebrews is writing to what is likely a group of persecuted Jewish followers of Jesus who face daily the threat of death or imprisonment. And because of this, some have decided that life would be easier if they just stopped following Jesus. There are believers today who face these kind of temptations in parts of the world that we don't see on the news very often. But there's brothers and sisters today who gather under the threat of, of imprisonment or, or even death. A few years ago, I brought some students to Salt Lake City, Utah to do uh, ministry to Mormons and evangelism there. And when we were there, we heard the story of a Mormon man who uh, this, this group that uh, led our, our time there, they'd been having conversations with this guy over the years, and, and this guy came to the conclusion that, that the Mormon faith is a lie and that it's, it's made up, but he couldn't walk away from it. Because if he did, his family would disown him, his wife would leave him and take the kids, he'd likely lose his job and all of his friends, the price was too high for him. So he'd rather continue to live a lie than to pay the cost. Most of us don't face the kinds of costs that these Jewish Christians in this letter faced or, or the high costs that that Mormon man faced in order to follow Jesus. But on one level, we all must count the cost because there is a cost and following Jesus will cost you. There will come a time when you ask yourself, is following Jesus worth it? Life is hard. You know how I know? I'm breathing. It's hard. And when life gets hard, we tend to examine our priorities and, and, and question their true value. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe it's your health, or your marriage is falling apart, or your child gets cancer, or maybe you've lost a child, whether by miscarriage or some tragic accident. And you ask yourself on a weary Sunday morning, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth getting out of bed and gathering with the church? Well, our text this morning is going to answer this question for us. It's going to answer this question, and it's going to 
show you three ways that the answer to this question should change your life. And so I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 25. And if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me as we read the word of the Lord together. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's powerful and effective to transform hearts. Father, may our hearts be soft. May they be fertile soil, ready to receive your word with joy. And may it take root in our hearts and bear fruit for your kingdom. Open our eyes, open our hearts this morning. Change us, Lord. Make us more like Jesus today. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So why is continuing to follow Jesus better than the alternative? The first three verses give us the answer. We don't really have time this morning to unpack uh, all that is in these three verses. These three verses are just dripping with uh, Old Testament uh, language. And the, uh, the writer to the Hebrews unpacks this earlier in his letter. Really, the first nine and a half chapters he spends unpacking this. Uh, So we're not going to get into all of that this morning, but I want to give you the gist of it, the idea of what's going on here. To be brief, some of these Jewish Christians, as we've talked about before, they're considering defecting. They're considering going back to Judaism because of the threats of persecution. And so the author of the Hebrews argues that if they do... A cost-benefit analysis of going back to Judaism versus following Christ, then they will discover that if they abandon Christ, they will lose in every way. They will lose in every way if they abandon Christ. Because Jesus is the perfection of all that Judaism pointed to. Judaism had a temple with priests and sacrifices in the presence of God in the most holy place of the temple. But Jesus is now the temple supreme. Look at John 2, 19 for that. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. The writer makes this point in chapter 4 of Hebrews. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice offered once for the forgiveness of sins. And the writer points to this earlier in chapter 10. 
the temple, the priests, the sacrifice were all shadows that only pointed to the real thing. Years ago, some friends and I took a trip to uh, England and we drove all over, we rented a car and we had a great time. And one of the things we saw there was uh, Buckingham Palace and we could find a guide to tell us where Buckingham Palace is and where the Queen stayed. But very few people have the authority to bring us to the Queen. Not many people can do that. A lot of people can point you there, but not many people can take you there. Jesus alone has the authority to bring us to the very presence of God in himself. He's not a shadow. He's the real thing. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him. And one of his disciples, Philip, then asked him, show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. Show us the Father. And Jesus says to Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Jesus is the very presence of God. He's the real thing. See, Jesus was not just a guide. He's the very presence of God in human form. So these Jewish Christians would be foolish to walk away from Jesus because Jesus is the reality that the shadows of the temple and the priesthood and the sacrificial system could only point to. Now, you may be sitting here today or watching online and thinking to yourself, you know, I'm not really tempted to, to go to Judaism. Uh, I'm not under any persecution to do that. So how does, it, how does it relate to us today? How does this relate to us? Here's how it relates to us. Those followers of Jesus were tempted to go back to Judaism because they thought that it would be easier. They thought that it would be more satisfying. I don't know about you, but I think the church in the West can relate to easy, a pursuit of comfort and ease. Today, it seems easier and more satisfying to stay in bed on a Sunday. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. You may be tempted to work on a Sunday because you feel that pressure to climb the corporate ladder and prove to yourself that you're not a bum. But Jesus died on a cross to make you acceptable to the only one whose opinion of you truly matters. You're already accepted. You're already in. You don't need to prove it to yourself or to anyone else. You may be tempted to abandon Jesus to pursue a relationship it doesn't honor God because you have a, a, this deep need to be accepted and loved by another person. But Jesus pursues you. He knows you completely, warts and all. And he chose to die for you so that you could be with him. Not because he had to, not because you're worthy enough, but because he wanted to. Because he loves you. You see, Anything that our hearts desire, that the world promises to fulfill, 
They're all fulfilled in Jesus. They're all met in Jesus. They're only shadows that cannot fully satisfy. I love this uh, quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. If you've never read it, pick it up. But C.S. Lewis explains it this way. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, does that not prove that the universe is a fraud? Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Jesus is the real thing. He's the thing that our hearts were made for. It is yours freely when you ask for it by faith. So if we know that when life gets hard, Jesus is worth it, here are three ways to persevere and thrive as God's people, the church. Because revitalization is going to take perseverance. Life doesn't get any easier. So we need to persevere. And so knowing that Jesus is worth it, here's three ways uh, that we persevere. The first one's found in verse 22. We draw near to God. We draw near. When life gets hard, it can be tempting to ditch your faith in Jesus and take the wheel for yourself and take the exit for Meville and drive after what seems easier. That can be a temptation. But knowing that Jesus is better, we're, we're exhorted here to draw near to God, not push him away. Draw near to him. We are to draw near in full assurance of faith. We draw near with confidence, it says in verse 19. Do you know what confidence means? Confidence means to speak freely. This means that we speak without thinking about what we're saying because we're not afraid of being rejected. When you go into a job interview, you're not speaking freely. You're thinking about every word that comes out of your mouth, wondering how it's being perceived, how it reflects on you. You're thinking carefully about your words. Students, students, when you go to your teacher to, to, to ask them to consider changing a grade, you tread with caution. You choose to use your words carefully. My kids have very limited screen time. They love screens like any kid would. Uh, and there are times when they want to watch something on, on TV. And when, when they do, sometimes we can hear them down the hallway, my wife and I, and they're kind of like planning, they're scheming, like, okay, how do we go and approach mom and dad, you know, in a way, in such a way where, you know, we're going to choose our words carefully. Usually it involves them nominating the cutest one, and they send them as a delegation to mom and dad to ask, you know, this uh, request. You know, we'll send the cute one because, you know, mom and dad can't resist. Or, you know, they, they kind of know us, you know, when, when we're weak, you know. They're like, okay, mom and dad are weak. They're at a low point. Let's, let's, let's go now and we'll ask to, to watch a TV show, right? They, they don't come with confidence, they choose their words carefully. 
In Numbers chapter 10, we learn about Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. And, and we, we, we learn that fire from the Lord consumed them. And there was this real fear in the priesthood about entering into the presence of the Lord. And there was a practice that they had instituted whereby uh, they would sew little bells on the hem of the robes and they would tie a rope around the high priest. And when he would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, uh, if the Lord struck him down, they'd hear the bells and so that they wouldn't have to go in there themselves. There was a rope tied around them so they could pull the body out. And so there, was, there wasn't confidence. They couldn't just go in there freely. This is not the way we approach God because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, we can have confidence to go before the throne of God, to draw near to him. Because of Jesus, we draw near to God without fear of rejection, without wondering, have we upset him too much? Will he reject me? We don't have that fear because Jesus was rejected in our place. He was rejected in your place. He bore the punishment for your sin, for our sin, for my sin, so that we wouldn't have to. And he gives us his record of righteousness by which we can go before him blameless, spotless, with confidence. How do we do this? We do it with a pure heart, with a true heart. The author of Hebrews uses this adjective true elsewhere in his letter to differentiate between what is apparent and what is reality. And so what this is saying is that we must not draw near to God under any false pretense, only appearing to be devout, but with a true heart, with a true heart for God. The good news is that Jesus makes our hearts true. Jesus makes our hearts true. Look at verse 19. It says that our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. This is a clear allusion to Exodus when the priests would sprinkle blood on the the nation of Israel as a way to inaugurate the old covenant to to cleanse them. But this was only ritually clean. They were only made ritually clean by this act. It did not have the power to cleanse their actual hearts. So this was yet another shadow. But the blood of Jesus shed on the cross is the real thing. It's the real thing, and it's applied to our hearts by faith to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. So we can, we can draw near to God with true hearts and with assurance of faith. But how do we draw near? We draw near by abiding. John 15 is, is the classic chapter on this. To abide in me as my words abide in you, Jesus says. Abide in me as my words abide in you. It's through the word of God and it's through prayer that we draw near to God. He's revealed himself most completely in the scriptures. And he invites us to come to him with confidence and prayer. Love his word. Let it be in you. Memorize it. Cherish it. Study it. Abide. 
draw near. In John 15, verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Drawing near, abiding in Jesus, shouldn't be a a, a drudgery. It's for your joy. It's for your joy that he commands us to draw near. God is for you. He wants your joy and he knows that your joy will, will only be fully satisfied when you draw near to him. When your spirit is crushed by the reality of living in a world broken by sin, it's for our joy that we draw near to him through his word and through prayer. This brings us to our next point. Because Jesus is worth it, the writer exhorts us to hold fast to our hope. Hold fast to our hope. This is in verse 23. If we linger too long on the waves of life that batter us, we can be tempted to loosen our grip on the core truth of Christianity, the gospel of grace that we profess. And to this, the writer of the Hebrews, he exhorts us to hold fast to our hope. He reminds us that that hope is, The hope of our salvation is not yet complete. There's more to come. Hold on. The apostles taught in the New Testament that there's this reality in which we have been saved, we are being saved, and that one day our great hope is that we will be completely saved when Jesus Christ returns in power and glory and fulfills every single one of his future promises. And this biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's not Disney hope. It's not wish upon a star hope. It's biblical hope. And biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is a confident assurance of things promised. It's a confident assurance of things promised. One day, Jesus our Savior will return in power and glory and our salvation will be complete. And this is the confession of our hope that must drive our lives. It must drive our lives. We're to hold on to this hope without wavering. But if we're honest, if we're honest and we look at ourselves on our not-so-best days, we look like pretty wobbly people with pretty weak grips. If left to ourselves, I don't know how much confidence is, is there when we look to ourselves. Not much. We're not so sure we would trust ourselves to hold on to a, a nice vase without pulling a butterfingers, shattering it on the floor. So how is it that we can do this? How is it that we can hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering? Well, look at the end of verse 23. For he who promised is faithful. That's how. That's how. The ground of our hope is not in ourselves. Amen? The ground of our hope is not in your ability to hold on. No, we can hold on because our perfect Faithful God is holding on to us. He's holding on to us. It's God's character that allows us to hold on. Paul begins his letter to Titus by telling him that he writes for the sake of the faith of God's people. 
who hope for eternal life. Why? He continues on. He says this. This is the beginning of Titus. The foundation of their hope is based on the fact that God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. That's the foundation of our hope. We have a God who promised and he never lies. And he will fulfill his promises. We have a faithful, confident assurance. Our last point, Jesus is worth it. And because he's worth it, we must stir up love. We must stir up love and good works in others. This is verses 24 and 25. We're, we're first told to consider how to do this. Consider it. This implies intentional thought. We're to ponder. How often have you asked yourself the question, how can I help the people around me grow into more godly character? How can I do that? Has that ever kept you awake at night? Or struck you in the middle of the day? You know, I'm going to church on Sunday. How can I be a blessing to someone? How can I encourage someone to grow in godly character? And the fact that we're exhorted to do this tells us the simple fact that this won't happen in a vacuum, naturally, without any intentionality. This just doesn't happen. We're exhorted to think about it, consider it, ponder it. How is it that we can do this? plan it. Next, notice this word stir up. This is a really interesting word because in the Greek, it's usually used in a negative way. It's usually used in a negative way. It it means to irritate each other. I don't know if you've ever been to a church that just irritates you. Uh, We're to irritate each other. What is this trying to get at? It's a word that means to provoke, to sharply disagree or to confront. When Paul and Barnabas parted ways, they had a sharp disagreement. That's the same word that's being used here. So this is saying that unless you have people in your life that you allow to sharply confront you, then you're not going to grow and become a more loving person. We need people to provoke us in a good way. I love the story of Odysseus when he uh, sails by the island of the Sirens. He knows that the women of the island sit on the rocks and they sing and it drives sailors mad and they just are consumed with desire and they they steer the ships right into the rocks and they all die. And, And knowing this, he commands his sailors to put wax in their ears and tells them, tie me to the mast and don't let me go. And when, when you hear me crying out, mad with desire, I want you to ignore me. I want you to ignore me and sail right past. Keep rowing until I come to my senses. What Odysseus is essentially telling his sailors is, he's telling them, give me what I need, not what I want. Give me what I need, not what I want. Do you have Christians in your life 
who you've given permission to, to tell you what you need to hear and not what you want to hear. Another way to think about this is if you really believe what the Bible says about your sin, then do you know which sins have, have the most power to shipwreck your faith? Do you know which sins those are? It's the ones you don't see. It's the sins you don't see. It's the ones that you minimize. It's the ones that you rationalize. Your biggest sins are the ones you're self-deceived about. And this is why one of the distinguishing marks of mature Christian community is that its members realize this and they're accountable to one another. They give each other permission to speak truth to their lives. Now the challenge to this kind of community is the fact that we are living in a society and in a day and age whose highest value is expressive individualism. You be you. I'll be me. A person steeped in this value system might say, only I have the right to decide what's, what's right or wrong for me. How dare you tell me that I shouldn't live that way? My life is nobody's business but mine. The problem with believing this and trying to follow Jesus is that you can't have that kind of individualistic freedom. You can't have it. Because if you do, you can't also have a loving community. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying here. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You can't have both. Are you willing to give your Christian brother and sister this kind of warrant in your life? Are you willing to do this for another Are you willing to provoke one another to love in good works? We're also told that we're to encourage one another. This is almost the opposite of what we've just been talking about with stirring up or provoking or irritating. This is the opposite, but we're to do both. It's a word that means to be empathetically and sympathetically putting yourself in someone else's shoes and letting them know that you're for them. You support them. You're with them. We need both confrontation and support and encouragement. We need both from others to grow in our good works. Some churches can be really good at one or the other. Some churches are big on confrontation, toe in the line. You know, you gotta follow all the rules, but they're not very encouraging. And other churches are big on supporting everyone, no matter how you live. You know, you do you. We'll encourage you. You know, we'll support that. But there's no standard of holiness. They're not going to grow as a loving community. Neither of these approaches produce love and good deeds. Next, we're told that we're not to neglect meeting together. We're not to neglect meeting together. This word for meeting, it's a word from which we get the word synagogue and it means congregation. Congregation. You know what the difference between aggregation and a congregation is? You know what the difference is? I'll show you. 
an aggregation is like a bag of marbles. And it's, it's, a, it's a collection of people who show up together to an event or to a, a service, uh, but they're just kind of slipping and sliding past one another. They're not really involved in each other's lives. They're, just, they're there for them. They're there to get their pep talk for the week. Uh, and they slide out the back door when no one's looking as soon as the service ends. Uh, but there's not really much interaction here. It's just a collection of individuals. That's aggregation. So congregation, here's what congregation is. Congregation's like a cluster of grapes. They're organically connected to one another. Uh, they, they're a part of one another. And that's the, that's the key here to understanding this is, is this word one another, and we're going to talk about that. So we want to be a congregation, not aggregation. But this word one another, let's look at this. This word means mutuality. This means mutuality. With this understanding, a, a church is not a place that you go to, but it's a, a community that you gather with. It's a community that you gather with. And when we gather in this way, we have in mind not just what am I going to get out of this? Am I going to feel good going home? Um, am I going to get my, um, my spiritual high for the week? And let me just say, that's not a bad thing. It's not bad to feel good leaving church. But is that all it is for you? If that's all all about just what you get out of it, then that's not thinking like a congregation. That's thinking like an aggregation. Are we intentional about what we give when we gather? We gather to bear one another's burdens to weep with one another, to rejoice with one another, to eat together, to pray together, to learn together, to confront and encourage one another in love. It's mutual. This is the New Testament Christian community. It's one of mutuality. I hope you can see this. The writer of the Hebrews is telling us that following Christ is not just about praying by yourself in your prayer closet. We're having an individual prayer time to read the Bible. By the way, none of those are bad things. But it's more. It's more than that. He's telling us that for us to really grow, for us to really experience life change, we need each other. We need each other. Back in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis He describes the many means through which Christ works in us. And he works in us in a lot of ways. And he says this, but above all, he works on us through each other. Men are mirrors or carriers of Christ to other men. That's the role we can have in a congregation when we minister to one another mutually is that we bring Christ to one another. We we show and we display Christ to one another. John Wesley uh, often said something like this, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. A Christian hermit is sort of an oxymoron. It's not something you do on your own. 
So following Christ and growing in love and good deeds is, is so much more than attending a service like this one. Not a bad thing, though. It means that we must be a congregation that practices one anothering. This means that we have an obligation to gather on Sundays, not just to consume, but also to be an intentional blessing to others. My family and I, we, we have a, a stoplight that we pray at uh, on our way to church each Sunday. And one of the things I pray faithfully every Sunday is, God, help us to know how we can be a blessing to others today. Help us to know how we can bless others. I think that's a really powerful prayer to pray as you're coming to church, to kind of rock you out of you know, this kind of consumer world that we live in, uh, and to remind yourself, I'm not going just to get, I'm going to give. How can I be a blessing to others today? We need to be involved in each other's lives. And one way you can do this is by being a part of a life group. We, we started life groups over the last year and a half or so, uh, and everything I've heard from people who are plugged into a life group is that it's, it's a tremendous blessing to them to be a part of people, uh, to be a part of a group that practices one anothering. Another way you can do this is by asking a more mature believer to enter into a discipleship relationship with you. This is something we'll be talking more about in, in the days ahead. But the idea is gathering in micro groups of, of uh, three or four people uh, and, and really just walking together and being involved in each other's lives and being accountable. So I'm going to wrap things up this morning by drawing your attention to the last line of verse 25. We're to do these things all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day here is a reference to the return of Christ. And this is a call to persevere until the end. Keep going. The days can be long. The days can be weary. The days can beat you up and buffet you and knock you down. But keep going. The day's drawing near. We don't know when that day is, but every day is one day closer. Keep going. Keep persevering because Jesus is worth it. Don't get comfortable. Don't slide into cruise control. It's a call for urgency because none of us knows the day of Christ's return. Or for that matter, the day of our final breath. He may call us home before his return. We have no idea when that day will be. And some of us who are young, that day feels like eternity from now. When you're young, you feel invincible. But young people are taken too. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. We don't know what the drive home will hold today. We don't know. But persevere Keep going because Jesus is worth it. Keep persevering until the end. So we're to draw near to God in faith. We're to hold fast the confession of our hope and we're to consider how to stir one another up in love and good works because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you satisfy perfectly every desire of our souls. This is because we are made by you and for you. You know us completely and intimately. And you save those who call on you in faith 
to forgive their sin and to make them part of your forever family. And your word says that none will snatch us from your hand. To know that your grip on us is more secure than any earthly bond gives us such great confidence to draw near in faith, to hold fast our hope, and to stir up one another to love and good works. And we desire to do these things, not not to earn any increased favor with you, but in joy, knowing that we already have perfect favor with you. Thank you, Jesus, that no matter what this life may throw at us, you are worth it. Amen.